Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett from CorbettReport.com. Today is the 14th of November, 2014, here in Japan. And for those of you keeping track at home, this is not the third Monday of the month, and yet this is an edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. And if you're scratching your head in wonder at such an odd calendrical coincidence... Well, don't scratch your head. Uh, basically, I will be traveling to Europe next week for some lectures, so I will not be here to post this uh, next week, so we're posting it on a Friday. So <laughs> at any rate, next month's edition of Film Literature in the New World Order will be back to our third Monday of the month schedule. This month, if you have been doing your homework, you will be prepared and have watched Tora, 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 the 1970 blockbuster that was, uh, well, it's a very interesting movie, I think, in a lot of ways. And... I suppose, uh, picking up from our conversation last month on this podcast, we were talking about a different uh, war movie. We were talking, of course, about Grave of the Fireflies and its treatment of World War II. Well, now we're looking at a, a very different treatment of World War II, or specifically one section thereof, namely the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, for what it's worth, I think, so cinematically, this is an, an interesting film, but uh, perhaps it fails in its task of presenting the historical record as it, as it is, as it proclaims in its opening title card. So here to talk with us today about this movie and the reality behind the events at Pearl Harbor, we have our old friend James Perloff, who you might remember from previous conversations on uh, on the Corbett Report about his book, The Shadows of Power, and about Truth is a Lonely a Warrior. And of course, those will be linked up in the show notes so that you can go back and listen to those conversations if you haven't already. He's, of course, available at jamesperloff.com. Uh, James Perloff, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for having me on one of the best shows uh, on the internet, and that makes it one of the best shows in the world. Well, I very much appreciate that sentiment, and I would just once again like to recommend your books to my listeners who uh, who have not checked them out yet. And of course, we have you on today to talk about Torah, 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 because your last name starts with Pearl, so I thought it would be a... No, of course not. No, of course, Pearl Harbor is one of the subjects covered in Truth is a Lonely Warrior, and uh, you've done extensive research into this subject. Uh, which has culminated in the release of a very, very thorough uh, uh, article on jamesperloff.com, Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt's 9-11, which I, is, again, a recommended read. If you are going to uh, watch this movie, you definitely should read this article as well so that you get the full historical story. We're going to uh, talk uh, in some degree of detail about that article today. So, James, let's roll up our sleeves and get into this conversation. First, by just discussing the, the movie a little bit. Um, as I say, I thought it was cinematically an interesting movie, insofar as I don't think I can think of many other movies that actually take it, uh, take a sort of a war footing and uh, what would be a sort of a stereotypical war movie and not dehumanize or downplay the other side of the story. So we have the Japanese perspective told by Japanese filmmakers with Japanese actors in a realistic way. And I thought that added um, to the to the drama of what was happening. Although it's interesting, I note uh, from Roger Ebert's 1970 review of the movie, a one-star review, he said it is the deadest, dullest blockbuster ever made because he thought it was just a, a screenplay mostly concerning itself with clerks, secretaries, teletype operators, and government functionaries, which is actually what I found fascinating about this movie, um, more so than I would have appreciated just more endless minutes of watching uh, combat footage. But uh, perhaps that's just my take on it. So I think cinematic this is an interesting movie. Historically, it, it is problematic in various ways. But, uh, James, what's your take on the movie itself? Well, uh, we should understand that the film Torah, Torah, Torah largely came out of uh, the work of Gordon Prang. And um, I'm just going to read what it says on the Internet Movie Database. I am a DB. It says, uh, quote, producer Elmo Williams sought out the services of the man regarded as the foremost authority on the attack on Pearl Harbor, Professor Gordon Prang. One of Dr. Prang's books, Torah, 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 had provided source material and the title for this film. Elmo Williams asked Dr. Prang to check the script scene by scene for accuracy. Dr. Prang made numerous corrections and suggestions, unquote. And that's why you have a lot of these what might appear uninteresting clerks and characters this detail comes out of Prang. He is, I should say, the chief apologist for the mainstream media and government view of what happened on Pearl Harbor. He is what you call a false flag denier. 
Um, there was actually a truth movement uh, after Pearl Harbor, just as there was one after 9-1-1, people who tried to tell the truth about it. It was largely suppressed, and Dr. Prang brings the mainstream view uh, to this film, and so it is full of his influences. And I should mention a couple of things interesting about Prang. Um, he'd been uh, given a large sum of money in the 1950s to write a major book on Pearl Harbor, which he really didn't get around to. And I was looking for Torah, 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 James. Uh, Amazon listed it as out of print. And as far as I can tell, this actually was just uh, a couple of articles he wrote in Reader's Digest. And I think when they talk about the book, Torah, 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 they're talking about the Reader's Digest reprint. Eventually, in the 1980s, a series of books came out by uh, Gordon Prang, the most famous of which is we, uh, At Dawn We Slept. But what's particularly remarkable is that these three books that came out in the 80s all came out after his death. They were finished by other people. He never actually finished that book he'd been paid for back in the 1950s. But there's something on the front end of this, which is also quite interesting, that most people wouldn't know. Uh, you're living in Japan. Well, he lived in Japan, too. He was part of the occupation forces, the GHQ, and he was the chief historian. And it's been brought to my attention by Joshua Blakeney, a British journalist I think you're familiar with. I believe he interviewed you. Uh, he called my attention to an uh, online book by Nishio Kanji called Breaking the Seal on GHQ's Burned Books. And it turns out, James, that when the Americans occupied Japan, they not only censored books and newspapers, but they actually destroyed more than 7,000 books, newspapers, and periodicals, all copies of them that had expressed a anti-American or politically unacceptable uh, view. They were destroyed completely, but Gordon Prang kept copies for himself. And I'm just going to quote from a paper by Timon Suzuki, a visiting scholar at Harvard and research fellow at Tokyo University. Quote, GHQ widely censored books and magazines published during the occupation. Gordon Prang, who was chief of GHQ's historical section, took many of these materials back to the United States. At present, these materials are kept in the Prang collection at the University of Maryland, where Prang worked. He wrote the manuscript in which the, uh, for which the famous movie Torah Torah was based on. In June of last year, a Japanese newspaper discovered that the Japanese Navy's combat logs from the time of the Pearl Harbor attack were in the papers of Gordon Prang because he kept these materials without returning them to Japan, unquote. So you'll notice that on uh, Amazon, he gets a lot of five stars for the great research he's done, but he really had a, a step up on other historians because he had all of this material that had really been purloined from Japan that not only American historians, but not even Japanese historians had access to. And he was part of a sort of an, Orwell, sort of an Orwellian figure in this censorship of Japanese history, but also becomes an Orwellian figure in that he now censors the truth movement about Pearl Harbor in this movie, Torah, Torah, Torah. Absolutely fascinating, and it's such an essential part of this story. Of course, you're referring to Gordon Prang, that's P-R-A-N-G-E, and we'll include some uh, links about him, and if you can send the link to that article you were reading from, we'll include that in the show notes so that people can check into that further themselves. And I think that squares up pretty nicely with what I, my takeaway understanding of Torah, Torah, Torah was, which is that it does contain certain tantalizing clues that uh, that were historically accurate about certain aspects of what was happening behind the scenes. But of course, it's all in the movie. It's all lines up as if it's just one one big colossal mistake. It's just one, one lapse after another, rather than part of a coordinated agenda to, of course, stop Admiral Kimmel from actually understanding or responding to the attack before, uh, before it uh, was actually underway. Um, but it, one thing that that I've encountered not only through the the viewing of the movie, but also the reading of your your article, Pearl Harbor: Roosevelt's 9/11, is that there's a bewildering array of characters here, not all of which are sorted out in my own head, and I'm sure some of the the listeners out there might share my my confusion on some of these points. So let's start going through some of the cast of characters that are involved in this. Of course, President Roosevelt, um, uh, the Commander in Chief of the United States at the time, but under him uh, there's a there's an array of characters and uh, some shadowy characters in some 
what might seem insignificant positions who may have had an awful lot to do with that. So let's start going through this and talking about people like, of course, Admiral Kimmel and uh, General Short and uh, going down the chain of command. Okay, well, uh, the first thing we should know is uh, about this false flag, which this movie does, as you say, um, attempt to uh, reconstruct as a series of accidents instead of something that was deliberate and planned. President Roosevelt was, uh, as is well documented, very, very interested in getting America into the Second World War. And on my website, I have an article called False Flag at Sea, all about the Lusitania, whose 100th anniversary of that singing is coming up next year, which was a central event that was used to, uh, as justification for America entering World War One. He'd been the Assistant Secretary of the Navy at that time, and his distant cousin, Winston Churchill, was the uh, head of the British Admiralty when the Lusitania went down. And uh, you'll find from my article and from books like The Lusitania by British historian Colin Simpson that the Lusitania was a setup. It was sent directly uh, into the path of a U-boat. The public was told that uh, it was sunk just uh, to kill women, women and children, when in fact it was carrying millions of rounds of ammunition and tons, tens of tons of um, explosive powder. The Germans were trying to stop these munitions from re reaching Britain. Well, it, now you see these same two uh, individuals, Winston Churchill and uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, have now become heads of state as Pearl Harbor approaches, and they are planning the exact same scenario. They are planning to bring America into the war on, against Germany on Britain's side. And a lot of provocations are being given to Germany. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, we, we sent uh, a lot of Lendleys to Britain, 50 destroyers. We froze their assets in America. We had our, our ships escorting uh, British convoys and times dropping depth charges on U-boats. And I have a quote in that article from uh, Admiral Dunitz. Uh, from the Nuremberg trials about how uh, he was forbidden to fight back by Hitler because the Germans did not want a repeat of the Lusitania. They did not want America coming in and turning the tide against them again. And when that uh, became clear to Roosevelt, they turned their attention to Japan as the, as the source that would create the false flag. And there were several steps to this. The first step was to provoke Japan. And the second step was to set up the false flag at Pearl Harbor. The third element of this really is the foreknowledge of the attack through many means, which we'll discuss, which was denied to the commanders at Pearl Harbor, who you've mentioned, uh, Admiral Kimmel, the Pacific Fleet commander, and Walter C. Short, the Army commander, and finally the cover-up that took place afterwards. And in many respects, this is similar to 911, uh, an explosive event that uh, launches us into major warfare, uh, foreknowledge, orchestration, and cover up. Well, then perhaps we can start detailing some of that foreknowledge, which again you do go through in your article. And um, there were, I mean, there are so many different things that we can, of course, uh, try to 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 at least uh, mention uh, uh, several several of them. But one that I had never encountered before, and that I thought was particularly interesting, was the idea that uh, there was a uh, was it a Texas congressman who had discovered a map showing the Japanese invasion plan? Was that uh, and 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 uh, this was apparently presented to one of Roosevelt's aides, who said <coughs> that him and the uh, the president had decided that this should not be shared with the nation. Is there? Can you tell us more about that? Well, I'll quote him directly. Uh, Martin Dyes was a well-known congressman from Texas, and his we wrote after he uh, had seen this map. He said, quote, as soon as I received the document, I telephoned Secretary of State Cordell Hull and told him what I had. Secretary Hull directed me not to let anyone know about the map and stated that he would call me as soon as he had talked to President Roosevelt. In about an hour, he telephoned to say that he'd talked to Roosevelt. And they agreed it would be very serious if any information concerning this map reached the news services. I told them it was a grave responsibility to withhold such vital information from the public. The secretary assured me that he and Roosevelt considered it essential to national defense, unquote. Now, James, if this quote stood alone, you could dismiss it as politically motivated or a crackpot. Or, but the problem is that we have so much of this evidence and uh, although it's not in the uh, foreknowledge section, I'm going to give you another quote because it uh, comes from 
a relatively authoritative uh, source. Uh, and of course, Helen Heyman, she was the daughter of Don Smith, who directed the Red Cross's war service at the time of World War II. And here's what she said, June the 2nd, 2001, quote, shortly before the attack in 1941, President Roosevelt called my father to the White House for a meeting concerning a top secret matter. At this meeting, the president advised my father that his intelligence staff had informed him of a pending attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. He anticipated many casualties and much loss. He instructed my father to send workers and supplies to a holding area. When he protested to the president, President Roosevelt told him that the American people would never agree to enter the war in Europe unless they were attacked within their own borders. He followed the orders of his president and spent many years contemplating this action, which he considered ethically and morally wrong. I do not know the Kimmel family, therefore would gain nothing by fabricating this. However, I do feel the time has come for this conspiracy to be exposed and Admiral Kimmel vindicated of all charges. In this manner, perhaps both he and my father may rest in peace, unquote. Now, James, these are just two examples of the foreknowledge, and it's, it's extensively documented from many, many sources that President Roosevelt knew of this pending attack. And yes, uh, again, this includes uh, the ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, and Brigadier General Elliot Thorpe, the Dutch military attache in Washington, Colonel F.G.L. Weidermann. I mean, a lot of different sources were all talking about this, uh, this possibility of the Japanese attack, and all of them were rebuffed in various ways, so, or ignored. So very interesting. And again, those are all in the article itself. Let's look at another piece of the foreknowledge puzzle, uh, the East Winds Rain message that uh, the, the U.S. intelligence was looking out for. Tell us about this message. Well, uh, you know, one of the main means of uh, foreknowledge of Pearl Harbor was the fact that we had cracked Japan's diplomatic code called PURPLE. And I should really explain that first because it leads to the East Wind Rain message. We were reading their diplomatic traffic. Uh, we had, uh, this, this purple code had to be enciphered and deciphered by machine. And the Japanese were convinced that the code could not be broken. It was so sophisticated. Well, we did crack it in 1940. And uh, we developed our own machine. And uh, President Roosevelt was getting the messages often on a same-day be- uh, basis and uh, they, they called it magic because it was magic that they could actually read Japan's diplomatic traffic often before the Japanese themselves did. They knew exactly what the Japanese were planning. And uh, as an example of this, uh, we knew that uh, they had ordered their consulate in Honolulu to divide Pearl Harbor into five areas and to report the exact location of each ship. And uh, they were ordered to report this twice a week. And we're reading their messages that said there appear to be no torpedo nets. And there is no alarm. The sailors taking this is all going on and being read in Washington. It's not being, but the the, the uh, command in Hawaii does not know it. Well, in addition to reading the diplomatic traffic, uh, which included, by the way, their break in relations. We read that before they presented it to Secretary of St- uh, State Cordell Hull on, on December the seventh. The, the the East Wind Rain message was a radio message. Now, this sophisticated machine, uh, not all the Japanese consulate, had the smaller consulates did not, were not equipped with it, and they had to have a way of letting their less important consulates and offices know that a war was coming with America. And so on November the 18th, a message was uh, transmitted through the code that the, if, if indeed war was to break out between the United States and Japan, a message would be sent on radio uh, during a weather report, and the message would be repeated three times. It was Higashi no Kazi Ami, which meant east wind rain. East wind signified the United States, and uh, a rain uh, meant uh, war. Rain meant negative war. And that message was broadcast on December the 4th, 1941. It was picked up by an, uh, Army and Naval Intelligence. It was picked up by the British, but it was not this uh, news was not conveyed to the commanders in Hawaii, Kimmel and Short. And, and just to clarify, that particular message wasn't part of that purple code. It wasn't the magic uh, decoding mm-hmm. that was responsible for that. That was openly broadcast as part of a uh, weather report. Right, but we knew what it meant. Right. Right, exactly. Well, let's let's talk then a little bit about the, the cracking of the uh, the purple diplomatic code, which does feature heavily in the movie. There's quite a lot of uh, of scenes surrounding that idea. 
And uh, and this, of course, it, as you say, it provides a lot of the information that could have been or should have been or was, in fact, pieced together by various people, but was withheld from others. Uh, let's talk about some of the, uh, the the things that were revealed through those uh, those cracked diplomatic codes. Uh, for example, uh, you note in your article that on November 29th, three days before the U.S. ultimatum uh, to Japan, Japan's envoys in Washington were told a rupture in negotiations was inevitable but that Japan's leaders do not wish you to give the impression that negotiations are broken off. And, uh, and it only gets more explicit from there. Tell us about some of those pieces of the puzzle. Uh, yes, uh, we also knew that they had informed Berlin that, quote, the breaking of, uh, out of war may come quicker than anyone dreams. Uh, we also uh, know that on December the 1st that they had uh, ordered their North American offices to start destroying their, their secret documents and uh, some of the officers were told to start destroying their purple code machines. And the reason for this was quite obvious to intelligence officers in Washington. Once the war broke out, then Japan's diplomatic offices would no longer have any immunity. And so, of course, they could not uh, let their offices be seized and their codes and secrets be known. And so they, this was the code burning um, uh, message uh, that occurred on December the 1st. Now, in the movie Torah, 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 you see a character from the Naval Translation Department, Alwyn Kramer, and he was a real person. And, um, but it's interesting that they chose Kramer because there was a senior office. The head of radio naval intelligence was uh, an officer named Captain uh, Lawrence Safford. And uh, he was actually considered the father of naval cryptography, a much more eminent man. But he's not in the movie. And... Uh, there is, I suspect, a probable reason for that, James, is that he was a truther. He was a Pearl Harbor truther, and he spent many years trying to persuade the public that he that we had complete foreknowledge of the attack. He would not be intimidated, as some officers were in the subsequent hearings, and he spoke up. So he's not he's not in the movie. You see, Alwyn Kramer, and uh, uh, you do see you do one thing. You do see is that in the movie Tora Tora is that they start to decode Japan's rupture of relations. They're decoding this on December the 6th, and it is to be delivered to the Secretary of State at exactly 1 p.m. on the 7th, uh, 1 p.m. Washington time, which is right after dawn in Hawaii. And in the movie, uh, Alwyn Kramer, Lieutenant Commander Kramer, who is in the translation section of the Navy intelligence, you see him... Uh, attempt to get this message to Roosevelt, and uh, he. This is part of Prang's attempting to show you this is a lot of accidents. His wife comes late. He says to his wife, "You're late. I need to get to the White House." And he gets to the White House, and she's when he comes back to the car, his, his wife says, "Well, did you get to the president?" He says, "No, I can only see Harry Hopkins, but he didn't have a key, so I had to leave it with this Commander Schultz." And the audience, the movie audience of Tora 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 kind of is left with the impression that maybe Roosevelt never got the message. Well, he did get the message. Uh, of course, the lieutenant commander doesn't guess, just get in to walk in and see the president of the United States. He did give the message to uh, Lieutenant uh, Schultz, who was the um, uh, communications duty officer in the White House. Schultz brought the message immediately to Roosevelt, who read it. And according to Schultz's testimony before the congressional hearing on Pearl Harbor, uh, President Roosevelt then turned to Harry Hopkins, his top aide, and said, this means war. And this, of course, is not in the movie. But uh, this is one of the features of the movie, James, if we can just uh, talk about the movie. The, the movie, as you pointed out, makes it look like everything's an accident. And uh, that was my impression as I rewatched this film, is there's accident after accident after accident. In fact, uh, I found a review of this film that really sums it up well. It's uh, from the Star-Spangled Screen, a pub, uh, uh, written by Bernard Dick. Here's how he described the movie, quote, What Torah 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 did is to show that the attack on Pearl Harbor was the culmination of security bungles, errors of judgment, miscalculations, military feuds, attempts at secrecy that backfired, messages received but not acted on, messages acted on but too late, Appointments made and rescheduled, and authority withheld and not delegated, unquote. And James, doesn't, isn't that the feeling and impression you get? You see all these bungles happening. Um, I'll, I'll give you one more example. Uh, shortly after that scene, 
you see Ambassador Gru, our ambassador to Japan, and he's gotten a message from Roosevelt, a plea for peace addressed to, uh, to uh, uh, the emperor, Emperor Hirohito. And, of course, this message was, was indeed sent. And in the movie, he, he, here's what he says. I wrote it down. He says, he says to his aides, look at the time when the president's message. I should have gotten this hours ago. And his aides say, well, as you know, sir, communications have been delayed lately. And, <laughs> this, James, this happens throughout the movie. But here's what you need to know. Roosevelt had written this plea for peace a week earlier. He sent it on the evening of December the 6th when he knew the attack on Pearl Harbor was imminent. He knew that his message would have to be encoded, sent to Japan, decoded, and he knew there was no way that Ambassador Gru in Japan would ever get an audience with the emperor within uh, 16 hours, which is about the amount of time they had. Uh, and by the way, the plea for peace, which the film audience says, oh, if only this plea for peace had gotten to the emperor in time, perhaps Pearl Harbor wouldn't have happened. The plea for peace, which Roosevelt sent, was nothing but a lot of flowery talk about peace. Uh, I'll quote from that uh, actual plea. Uh, Roosevelt wrote, quote, um, The people of the United States believe in peace and the right of nations to live and let live. And we've eagerly watched the conversations between our governments during these past months. We have hoped for a termination of the present conflict between Japan and China. We have hoped that a peace in the Pacific could be consummated in such a way that the nationalities of diverse peoples could exist side by side, unquote. It goes on like that, but there's nothing in here that Japan, Japan is going to war with America because we have a trade embargo, which is strangling them. This is the key provocation. There is nothing in Roosevelt's message that is concrete, that could have, that it could have possibly prevented the attack. It was face-saving on Roosevelt's part so that he and subsequent historians like Gordon Prang could say, you know, the president tried to, uh, to uh, maintain peace, but alas, his uh, message arrived too late due to these poor communications. Well, this, this brings up an important tangent that I think we should follow because it is something that is brought up by certain researchers in this day and age, and it follows along the lines of an argument, uh, a sort of counter-argument to the argument presented in your article that is not uh, supportive of the official government narrative, but kind of a, a different conspiracy theory. Basically, that um, the, the Churchill uh, was the the key man behind this operation and was deliberately withholding information from Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was basically a dupe um, to people in his administration who were fooling him. This idea has been forwarded, I think, perhaps most notably by James Rusbridger in Betrayal at Pearl Harbor, and there are, as I say, there are other researchers today that continue to propound this idea that basically Roosevelt was just this big dupe, and there are certain pieces of this puzzle that I guess you could say line up with such a, a hypothesis. For example, as portrayed in the movie, the magic messages, the decoded purple code uh, diplomatic messages of, of Japan were being sent to certain key uh, people in the Roosevelt administration and in the, the military, but not to the president uh, for a significant period of time in 1941. For several months, he was not receiving any of these uh, decoded messages, presumably because his assistants were leaving them in the trash can and being careless with them and, and things like that, again, as portrayed in the movie. So it looks like Roosevelt was being cut out of the loop there. And uh, and with such pieces of the puzzle as, uh, for example, you were quoting Schultz's testimony about what he did with that message once he received it and gave it to Roosevelt and what Roosevelt said. But again, if there was a coordinated plan to make it, uh, to basically frame up um, Roosevelt in all of this, then that we have to at least look at that such testimony quizzically. What, what do you say to this uh, proposal that Roosevelt, in fact, was duped um, by Churchill and, and various people within his own administration? I would say that absolutely not, that he and Churchill were uh, working for the uh, identical objective. And uh, there are there is so much evidence of the personal warnings, which, by the way, also came from J. Edgar Hoover about the Pearl Harbor attack. And we haven't even touched on the naval intercepts, which were proven by Robert Stinnett in 2000 in his book, uh, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. Uh, FDR certainly had access to these messages through his routing officer, uh, Arthur McCollum of uh, Naval Intelligence. And the most significant of these intercepts was uh, uh, November the 25th, 1941, 
from uh, Admiral Yamamoto to uh, the uh, Japanese uh, task force, the, the exact message was, quote, the task force keeping its movement strictly secret and maintaining close guard against submarines and aircraft shall advance into Hawaiian waters and upon the very opening of hostilities shall attack the main force of the United States fleet and deal it a mortal blow. The first air raid is planned for the dawn of X day, exact date to be given by later order, unquote. This information was denied not to Washington, and it was denied to Pearl Harbor, it was denied to our commanders. Now, about this business of war, of them cutting him out, this looks to me like another face-saving uh, maneuver. Uh, he is the president of the United States. If he is suddenly cut off in this traffic, he's going to ask why. Everybody around them is getting these magic messages. Harry Hopkins is getting it. His Secretary of War, Henry uh, Stimson, is getting it. His Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, is getting these messages. His Army Chief of Staff, George Marshall, is getting these messages. The Chief of Naval Operations, Harold Stark, is getting these messages. So what does it matter? Even if he did, wasn't getting these messages, everybody in his cabinet room is getting them. There's no way there was a conspiracy against Roosevelt by his entire cabinet. He is getting these messages. He has got the personal warnings, uh, James. As far as uh, him being off magic, that sounds like a face-saving thing, like the plea to uh, Admiral Hirohito, but he definitely has, there's overwhelming evidence that he knew completely about the attack. And he called together on the evening of December the 6th, he called together General Marshall, Admiral Stark, and these other leading cabinet officials. This is when he sent the plea to Admiral Hirohito uh, under oath uh, in, the, in the congressional investigations, both General Marshall and Admiral Stark could, said they could not remember what, where they were on, the, on December the 6th, but we know from the testimony of uh, Secretary of the Navy Knox's close friend, James Stallman, that there was this meeting on the 6th. Roosevelt absolutely knew, and this business about him being briefly cut off from the magic messages is certainly a cover. I tend to concur with that, and I think it's a bit uh, silly to imagine that, I mean, even if Roosevelt was duped somehow in all of this, he must have been the worst dupe in the world, because as you point out in your article, he went on to appoint um, as, uh, as cover-up artists to to head the commission to, to look into the events, and he promoted many of the people involved in these events. So um, if he was continuing to be duped after the fact, then I suppose it was, uh, it was a pr pretty uh, ridiculously silly man, and who should not have been in charge of the country at any rate. But um, but uh, 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 just on the note of the the crack naval codes, uh, as you were talking about with uh, Robert B. Stinnett's contribution to the Pearl Harbor research, I will present the other side of that argument as well. Um, we'll take that for example from an article in Cryptologia by uh, Stephen Budiansky, entitled "Closing the Book on Pearl Harbor." And uh, certainly, Budiansky is uh, uh, very much a uh, a conspiracy theory smearist who wants to. To say that uh, that Pearl Harbor was there was no hint of conspiracy, but he does present some compelling evidence that in fact the JN25 Japanese naval codes were not cracked by the United States um, at the time of Pearl Harbor, and that uh, a lot of that uh, talk instant it was overblown. I won't get into all of the specifics. It's a lengthy article that I'll allow people to read. But basically, the JN25 code was a five-digit code where there was, at the beginning of the war, 30,000 words and phrases. By the end of the war, 100,000 words and phrases were, um, were basically transferred into a five-digit number. And... Then uh, there was a separate code book which, uh, from which additive numbers were taken and then added to those five-digit numbers uh, sequentially so that you needed the code book as well as the, the sort of additive code book in order to understand these messages. At the time of uh, Pearl Harbor, the uh, United States were able to receive uh, the messages. They had about, uh, I think, 2,800 of the, uh, the, the codes solved, but uh, only uh, something like 2,500 of the of the additive numbers solved. So they, they knew less than 5% of the overall code and not enough to actually translate the messages. And the messages that Stinnett found uh, through his FOIA requests and others, uh, according to this interpretation, were, <coughs> excuse me, were messages that had been uh, solved and decoded after the fact, retro retroactively in 1946, after the war was ended and there was nothing left for the uh, the research department to do. So that's the counter to um, Robert B. Stinnett's that I think people should at least look into for themselves. But I, again, I don't think everything hinges on those naval codes. 
Um, as you say, I mean, the purple diplomatic code, which we know 100% conclusively was broken, um, was more than enough to piece this together. So uh, I don't see what, what the point of, uh, of the, the naval codes are. I mean, just to add just to add more fuel to the fire, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know if you have anything to say to that, but we, or we can move on. Uh, we can move on. I have not read the article, and I'd be interested in, in doing it. I will say that uh, even without that evidence, we have books going back to 1947 that uh, Roosevelt had foreknowledge of the attack. So even without that discovery, I look at this more really as supplementing and reinforcing what we already knew to be true. But I'd certainly uh, be happy to take a look at that article. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, of course, that will be in the show notes so that people can take a look at it for themselves. Let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, the reaction to this. Where the movie ends, of course, is the attack has just occurred, and now everyone understands this is war, and, and of course, we're left with the ominous tones of, you know, what's going to happen from this point. But in real life, of course, what, what ultimately resulted from this was the, uh, the, the smearing and the dragging through the mud of, uh, of Short and Kimmel, and basically trying to heap everything at their doorstep. And a lot of intimidation of people who at first were uh, coming forward with information, for example, about the East Wind Rain message and other pieces of the puzzle, but were then intimidated out of their testimony. Let's talk a little bit about the cover-up itself. Yes, as you can imagine, James, uh, after this disaster, there was a tremendous demand for accountability because we'd suffered enormous losses. Uh, We'd uh, lost uh, over 2,000 dead. 18 ships, including eight battleships, had either been sunk or heavily damaged, and we'd lost about 200 planes. And so who was to blame? There was going to be somebody to blame. And President Roosevelt did appoint a a commission. Uh, He appointed a Supreme Court justice who was quite friendly with Owen Roberts, who was a very ardent internationalist. And um, uh, along with this, uh, a couple of army officers, uh, one who was on General Marshall's staff, General Marshall, again, the, chief, the army chief of staff at that time, uh, a figure who plays very prominently in the Pearl Harbor cover up, as well as a friend, uh, an officer who's a, a close friend, retired from the army. There was uh, General Frank McCoy. We also have uh, Rear Admiral Joseph Reeves, who had been given a job in Lendley's. He was also retired. He'd be a job in Lendley's by Roosevelt. So we have this very Washington-friendly uh, commission that is whose assignment is to find out what happened at Pearl Harbor, and uh, it was a very irregular commission. They held a couple of days of meetings uh, in Hawaii with Stark and Marshall. Everything was friendly. Everything was off the record too. Nothing was being taken sworn until uh, the the fifth member, Admiral Stanley, uh, came in and said, "Why are, why aren't we taking sworn statements?" Well, they then went out to Hawaii where they conducted almost three weeks of hearings. Admiral Kimmel brought a fellow officer, Robert Theobald, to be his counsel, and uh, uh, Chief Justice, uh, sorry, uh, Supreme Court Justice Roberts, who ran the commission, the Roberts Commission, told them, "Oh, you you're not allowed an attorney here. This is not a, a courtroom. This is just a, a hearing." And uh, because it was not a courtroom or it was just a hearing, something informal, uh, there was no right to ask uh, uh, questions of witnesses. All the rights of defendants were denied to Kimmel and Short, who quickly found this was indeed a kangaroo court. The Roberts Commission uh, issued a report completely uh, glorifying, I would have to say, uh, our, uh, the civilian administration in Washington. They uh, said that uh, Admiral Stark and uh, uh, General Marshall, who had not refused to call Pearl Harbor on the morning of the attack. We can get into that. They were ur- both urged to do so by uh, junior officers, both refused to do so. They were given a complete whitewash by the Roberts Commission, who laid all the blame on Pearl Harbor for on Kimmel and Short. They said they were guilty of dereliction of duty. They would not taken adequate surveillance measures, disregarding the fact that they didn't have adequate surveillance planes denied to them by Washington. Uh, they were smeared in the press. Even their wives became the, uh, the, the, the victims of yellow press uh, gossip and stories. And the, the headline, Dereliction of Duty, ran across America, and they received death threats. And uh, people, uh, you know, members of Congress stood up and said, you know, we should court-martial these two guys. It caused the death of all these young Americans. And Kimmel and Short said, that's what we want. We want to be court-martialed. We want to be tried in a courtroom where we have the rights of defendants. Well, 
This is not what Roosevelt wanted. And he, he disallowed courts martial, he said, for the time being, in the interest of the war effort and national security. And, uh, of course, he knew that if three years elapsed, the statute of limitations would, would elapse. And, and uh, uh, Kimmel and Short said, that's no problem. Uh, we, we waive the statute of limitations. We want a, uh, a courtroom hearing. And that's what led to the mandated by Congress Army Pearl Harbor Board and the Naval Court of Inquiry, where the truth started to come out. But I'm going to pause here because I've been talking for a while and I'd like to hear anything you might want to interject. Well, I, I think, that, I mean, all of this is, is just so important to understand because, again, so much of the action is in the reaction to events like these. And so when we see a, a coordinated attempt to frame up various individuals and cover up the rest, I mean, I think we can understand what's going on and exactly as we saw, for example, with 9-11 and the cover-up commission. Um, but uh, just to put the bookend on it, of course, Kimmel and Short were eventually, their their names were uh, were resuscitated, I suppose, in the uh, eyes of the public, and they were eventually posthumously promoted. Is that correct? No, they never did get uh, their families. They were demoted, of course, and resigned from the military after this. Uh, uh, they, uh, the uh, Department of Defense was asked by Congress to reinvestigate this matter, but uh, they were never uh, had their ranks restored. However, a resolution was passed by Congress in 1999 saying that they had uh, discharged their duties, quote, competently and professionally, and that our losses at, at Pearl Harbor were, quote, not a result of dereliction of duty, unquote. That is not official. It's a resolution of Congress at the urging of their families. Admiral Kimmel died in 1968 and General Short in 1949. James, I'm reminded here of something pretty important that I've left out uh, so far, and it means backtracking for a moment. But if you look in the movie Torah, 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 there's a brief scene that'll run right by you where you see Admiral Kimmel talking to another officer he calls Jim. And the man named Jim says, you know, I told uh, Roosevelt that this place was a mousetrap and we ought to keep our, our, the fleet in San Diego. And I, I do want to touch on this because you're not going to get the significance. The decision to base the fleet at Pearl Harbor, what is it doing there in the first place? This is a very important part of this false flag of setting up a tempting target for the Japanese. So can we just talk about that for a minute? Uh, please do, because again, this points to the lie that uh, Roosevelt had nothing to do with what occurred at Pearl Harbor. At the very least, he's directly responsible for the positioning of the fleet there. That's right. The decision to put the fleet in, in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii was not made by the Navy, it was not recommended by the Navy. It was entirely President Roosevelt's decision. Now, Admiral Kimball's predecessor, uh, at that time was J.O. Richardson. He's the guy who's called Jim in the movie. J.O. Richardson flew to Washington and he presented Roosevelt with a list of reasons why the fleet should not be based in Pearl Harbor. And let's go over what those reasons were. Number one, Pearl, uh, Pearl Harbor and Hawaii are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They're surrounded by millions of square miles of uninhabited waters. So you're vulnerable to attack from 360, 360 degrees Whereas if we had kept the fleet at its normal berth on the U.S. West Coast, you could never launch a surprise attack there. You, you couldn't pull it off. Number two, at Pearl Harbor, the fleet was bottled up like sardines, making them ideal targets for bombers. Number three, Hawaii is more than 2,000 miles from, the, from America, the continent. So oil and other supplies and replacement personnel had to be brought over 2,000 miles. Number four, Pearl Harbor did not have adequate dry docks or oil storage facilities or training facilities or tugboats. Uh, you, could, uh, you could keep the fleet on a much better war footing if, if that's what you want to do by keeping it on the West Coast. Number four, uh, or actually I think we're up to number five now, 37% uh, of Hawaii's population, was uh, native population, was ethnically Japanese. So at a time you're in trouble with Japan. Uh, this is not what you want. You don't want your fleet where it can be looked upon or spied upon or subject to uh, sabotage by, by Japanese people. And uh, number six, putting the fleet, the entire Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, separated all the men from their families, creating morale problems. Now, these were all good reasons for not having the fleet in Hawaii. Uh, President Roosevelt could not rebut these objections. And the only reason he could give for putting the fleet in Pearl Harbor... Uh, he said it would uh, 
deter Japanese aggression. Now, James, was he right about that? Well, as, <laughs> as, of, no. as, of, as of December the 7th, everyone knew that having the fleet in Pearl Harbor did not deter Japanese aggression. But guess what? The Navy got all the blame. President Roosevelt was never held accountable for this decision. It is his decision that puts the fleet there. It is work that uh, prevents the intelligence messages from reaching our commanders at Pearl Harbor. And in his instructions that the cover up takes place. Such an important point, and at least one of those points is explicitly made explicit in the film uh, w regarding the possibility of sabotage from the uh, the ethnic Japanese population of Hawaii. Uh, so that's the decision uh, made to to uh, group all of the the fighters together uh, on the runway, basically making them sitting ducks for the bombing that eventually happened. So. Again, so many parts of that puzzle just, I mean, make absolutely no sense from any perspective other than to make the entire Pacific fleet sitting ducks. And yet, interestingly enough, the main targets of the attack, the aircraft carriers, were not in Pearl Harbor that day. That's right. And I think, uh, James, if we may interpret the mindset of the people setting up this false flag, which certainly includes Roosevelt and Marshall, and a, a complicit people, Henry Stimson, his uh, War Secretary, Skull of Bones, Council on Foreign Relations, his assistant is John J. McCloy, the future president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the World Bank. But um, the, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, remind me, uh, move my place marker back there, James. Uh, <laughs> the aircraft carriers not being at Pearl Harbor? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Roosevelt did not really want the entire Pacific fleet to be destroyed in such a way that we couldn't win the war. If you look at World War II, you'll notice something interesting, that battleships were rarely used by the United States. Very, very rarely. We depended mostly on our aircraft carriers, our fast cruisers, our destroyers. Uh, what got sacrificed at Pearl Harbor was mostly aging battleships, which were slow. These were relatively expendable. In fact, I don't have the quote in front of me or in my article, but uh, he did uh, uh, send a uh, letter or note to Lord Halifax, the British foreign minister, saying that these were ships that we really could uh, uh, more or less afford to lose. Comparatively speaking, the aircraft carriers were the significant ones. They were out of Pearl that day. So the idea was not to lose the war. The idea was to create an incident. And uh, these battleships were considered not essential to winning the war, but it, certainly their destruction was essential to um, impacting public opinion to getting us into the war. Well, like any good false flag, you choose your targets wisely. And I think there's multiple reasons, for example, why the Twin Towers needed to be brought down anyway. So why not do them in a spectacular way that facilitates a war agenda and much else besides? So uh, so again, I think you're, there's so much to, to parse here. And there really is. I mean, we could talk for hours about Pearl Harbor and the various uh, pieces of this puzzle. But I will, again, refer people to your article, which I think lays it out in a, uh, in a very logical fashion, very easy to read and very informative uh, article. So I'll refer people to that for the, the sort of the full story. But turning our attention back then to the movie, this comes out in 1970, as you say, based on the work of Gordon Prang, and is clearly an attempt to make, uh, to, to put to some extent, I think, introduce a, a larger section of the public to the idea that, in fact, a lot of this was known beforehand in various ways. But to, uh, as we say, to, to put it in that context, that narrative of, oops, it was all one big mistake. Now, obviously, in the film literature, New World Order series, we're examining these types of Hollywood productions and, and other uh, pieces of pr predictive programming and propaganda to try to parse what they're doing to the, the public imagination at certain key times. In 1970, I mean, what, what is the point of this movie in 1970? Does this have a particular effect on the American psyche at that time? And if so, what, what, what do you think the purpose of a piece of propaganda like this would be? James, uh, that is a question I've thought about, and I, it's, it's hard to say. Prang had been uh, given money in the 1950s to start writing this book. He did publish Torah, Torah, Torah in Reader's Digest in late 1963. We're talking only a few months before Tonkin Gulf. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Hollywood was interested. They're getting the rights. They're working on this uh, uh, in the mid-1960s. Admiral Kimmel had died in 68, uh, two years before this came out. Uh, Harry Elmer Barnes had died, one of the chief revisionists, had uh, died in 68, and shortly before he died, he wrote a, uh, a revisionist piece on Pearl Harbor. 
are these factors? It's hard to say. 1970, you know, if you look at this movie, it's interesting that they have a lot of Japanese actors in it. And the movie was popular in Japan, not in America, it was popular in Japan. And I'll just mention that in 1970, the year this came out, it's a big new Brzezinski in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, and in his book, Between Two Ages, had called for a trilateral partnership between Japan, America, and Europe. And of course, that later took place in 1973 when he and David Rockefeller formed the Trilateral Commission, including Japan. Could it be in some small way part of a cultural maneuver to warm up to Japan by letting them uh, take part in this film, which sort of uh, gives them a more human and forgiving uh, appearance in the attack on Pearl Harbor. There's a lot to think about, and I don't know if there's any one exact reason. You know, my first thought was the Vietnam War, but you know, James, this movie bombed when it came out in America. Uh, Liberals didn't want to touch it because they really didn't want to think about the military and conservatives were, uh, who were, if they were pro-war, they didn't want to touch it either because it made the military look like a bunch of stumble bums, uh, pretty much. And so it, it was actually a, a flop, a flop when it came out. It's gained a lot of respect since then uh, because of its detail and, uh, you know, its cinematic qualities. But it was not popular. And so there's a lot of considerations that could go into this. But I think it was part of a long process going back to the 1950s. But for sure, with preying on the scene... It is definitely Hollywood's stamp on the official mainstream media and government story. As you know from 911, mainstream media and government explanations usually go hand in hand. Well, actually, the idea of this as a type of rehabilitation of the Japanese in, in the minds of the American audience, I mean, they think there's something to that, because as I say, this is one of those rare war movies that doesn't simply portray the enemy other as some faceless, nameless, robotic uh, killer <laughs> machine. I mean, these are actual people who have their own deliberations. So. Um, but uh, interestingly, just as a side note, uh, just a, on, on the note of the production of the movie, in fact, uh, Akira Kurosawa, the famed, legendary, iconic Japanese film director, was not only slated to, but was actually in the middle of directing the Japanese parts of this movie when he was relieved of duties, I, I believe because he was using nepotism in his casting of the film and the studio caught on and didn't like that, so relieved him of his duties and replaced him with another director. So we almost had a Tora 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 that was one half filmed by one of the greatest uh, filmmakers of all time. That would have been interesting, but... um but let's then let's finally let's turn to the idea of Pearl Harbor in the popular imagination overall. Obviously, this is kind of a touchstone for the American population and something that's repeatedly brought up and repeatedly returned to. I mean, here we are, if you can believe it, 73 years later, and it's still quite iconic and still usually marked uh, and, and remembered on the, the 7th of December each year. So obviously it still resonates with the American public and for perhaps for that very reason, of course, we saw the PNAC documents back in uh, 99, 2000, referring to the need for a new Pearl Harbor uh, to, to basically re reshape the American populace and, and refocus them towards extending the American century into the 21st century. And lo and behold, of course, the new Pearl Harbor arrived on 9-11-2001. And on the note of predictive programming, what movie happened just a, a, a several months before that? Uh, what, what movie occurred? Oh, yes, Pearl Harbor. So there definitely seems to be something to the idea of Pearl Harbor. Can you speak to that, uh, the place that it holds in, in the American imagination? Yes, James, uh, you're quite right. Uh, the movie Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck appeared a few months after the project for the New American Century called for a new Pearl Harbor and a few months before 911. And, you know, James, we originally considered talking about that movie instead of Tora, 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 but I'm glad we picked this one. It's, uh, this one has more detail uh, uh, regarding uh, the major figures, whereas the Ben Affleck movie is more focused on a love story and two brothers at, at Pearl Harbor. But it's quite significant. I, I, I look back and Touchstone Pictures made that, and I don't see any evidence that Touchstone had made any other pro-war patriotic movies other than Pearl Harbor. And uh, certainly Hollywood has a long history of producing films that uh, are significantly timed to impact public opinion. I mentioned this one before to you, but uh, this goes before both our times, but six weeks before Pearl Harbor, uh, Hollywood released its best, uh, best-selling, best box office release of 1941 as Sergeant York, 
It's all about a, a soldier in World War One who didn't want to enlist, but he finally enlists and he becomes a big hero. And that was six weeks before Pearl Harbor. And I think that's another part of the part of prep preparing American opinion for what's going on. But uh, speaking of the resignation, there are a lot of similarities between Pearl Harbor and 911. They were both very carefully orchestrated. Uh, both involved massive death and destruction because that's what it took to get Americans who were very jaded after learning about the truth about the Lusitania, the truth about World War One. They didn't want to get into another war. Uh, it took uh, to get Homeland Security. Same thing. It was going to take a major event. So uh, lots of death, lots of violent destruction. And, of course, uh, official commissions and, of course, truth movements, truth movements that were ridiculed. And it's, I, I just want to point this out, James, that there were people like uh, Lawrence Safford, like Admiral Kimmel, like Rear Admiral Robert Theobald and Harry Elmer Barnes and others. There was a, actually a truth movement following Pearl Harbor. No Internet back then, but they were publishing books through small uh, publishing houses trying to tell the people the truth that Pearl Harbor was foreknown and that it was a false flag. And just like truth is of today, they're ridiculed by people who said, you know what, we're in a democracy. Our own government would never do that to us. You know, as as relatively easy as it is today to be a truther, to imagine going through all of that process back in the 1940s to try to, uh, to get this information out to others. I mean, you have to tip your hat to that kind of perseverance. And that, again, proves that truth will out and the truth will set you free. But truth is a lonely warrior. So on that note, why don't we once again direct people to some of your works in which you've talked about this uh, in greater length? Thanks. Uh, well, my uh, I wrote about Pearl Harbor first in 1986 for the New American on the 45th anniversary, and I was really inspired by John Tolan's book called Infamy, uh, uh, just a tremendous book on Pearl Harbor. But I published The Shadows of Power. We've talked about it before, uh, before on your show. It was a bestseller and remains one. And uh, actually, it was uh, after being on your show, James, by the way, I should mention it was Amazon's number one bestseller on, on international relations. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks very much, James Corbett. Thank uh, you even to though, the listeners, but, more important. Even though, yes, even though I was 26 years old. But um, yeah, that was a uh, history of the Council on Foreign Relations, which, of course, the Council on Foreign Relations is the organization established in 1921 that dominates the presidential candidates, I'm sorry, pres pre uh, presidents cabinets, whether they are Democrat or Republican. And that's really why we only have cosmetic changes when we go back and forth from Republican to Democrat. But that is the tool by which the America's oligarchy uh, controls policy, one of the major tools. Uh, but after getting involved in some other subject areas, after 9-1-1, I really felt the urgency to, again, be writing in this venue of history and uh, political events. And my newest book is called Truth is a Lonely Warrior. And it is a uh, encapsulation of, uh, of uh, trying to give people the big picture, not just one piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but the, the full picture. So we, I have chapters in there on the false flags. The book actually begins with Pearl Harbor. I have a chapter on the Fed, a chapter on the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, one on media control, uh, one on uh, Freemasonry, uh, one on 911, one on control of the arts and uh, uh, one on uh, weather control and so forth, trying to really bring people up to date that this oligarchy continues to rule. Its, uh, its methodologies have, have modernized, but its goals of world government and police state remain the same. Unfortunately so, and as long as that remains in effect, I suppose there will be people like yourself, the lone voices in the wilderness, trying to warn people about what is really happening. And thankfully, with the incredible technology at our disposal in this day and age, it is easier than ever to be involved in this, in spreading the truth. And we have access to more information now at our fingertips than presidents or emperors back in the past ever could have dreamed of. So I think we should take advantage of this, and we should support the work of the people who are putting these dots together. Once again, James Perloff, jamesperloff.com. Of course, I'll throw in the links to everything we've been talking about today so people can go and check it out for themselves. James, thank you again for your time. Thank you, James, and thank you for everything you're doing. You are really uh, one of the more foremost figures in the truth movement. Your work is much appreciated. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, once again, that is James Perloff. And once again, everything is in the show notes. So please do go there for all of the documents and articles and books and everything that we've been talking about today. A ton of information, but a very important and useful companion to the have-truths of Torah, Torah, Torah. And on the note of Torah, 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 in fact, we did get an email in 
prior to the recording of this episode this month uh, from a listener, Daniel, who wrote about, uh, well, specifically, he brought up the point about the betrayal at Pearl Harbor and the Rusbridger idea that uh, that Churchill had basically duped Roosevelt. So he brought that up as a point, and so I, I included that in our conversation here with Perloff, because I think it is uh, at least something to, to be aware of, that there are other alternative theories about what happened. I personally agree with Perloff. I don't think there's much weight to that argument. And even if there was, it just means that uh, Roosevelt was a blithering idiot. <laughs> but uh, but at any rate, that that exists. And there are people who basically New, New Deal ideologues who want to maintain that Roosevelt was the greatest thing since sliced bread, who will never hear anything bad said about Roosevelt. Of course, he didn't know about Pearl Harbor. So that's coming from a very ideological slant. Uh, following the truth, I think, leads us in a different direction. But but it, it, I will put the link, of course, to Betrayal at Pearl Harbor, so you can go and check into that uh, for yourselves. And now on to the note of uh, comments that people left onto, on the previous edition of uh, Film Literature in the New World Order, obviously talking about uh, Grave of the Fireflies. We did get a few responses in uh, from Corbett Report members left as comments on that post uh, on FLNWO number 20. Uh, first of all, from not only Corbett Report subscriber, but good friend of the show and an excellent podcaster in and of himself, uh, Porkins Policy himself, uh, Pierce Redmond left this note. Thank you so much, James, for picking this film for FLNWO. This is not only my favorite anime, but one of my favorite movies of all time. I must confess that I have not rewatched the movie since the first time I saw it. I just could not bring myself to go through the emotional pain that it caused me the first time. Few movies have moved me to completely break down and sob the way Grave of the Fireflies did. I've come to interpret Seda's decision to leave his aunt's house as his complete rejection of reality and his vain attempt to remove himself from the reality of war going on around him. The fact that this leads to his sister's death and ultimately his own uh, only makes this film more beautifully tragic. Again, this movie explores the intricacies of the destructive nature of war in a way that no other film has. Thanks again, James and Brock, for an excellent episode, and I do hope you pick another anime at some point. Well, thank you for the suggestion, Pierce, and I'm certainly always open to suggestions. Um, I certainly get a lot of suggestions for FLNWO, so we can't cover them all, but uh, I do appreciate it. And if there's any particular anime that uh, Pierce or anyone else out there thinks we should cover, send send the idea in. Again, I can't promise that we'll cover it, but I do appreciate it. And uh, I do appreciate the comments there. And I have to agree that I think the pivotal point of that movie in the second watching, as a slightly more mature uh, viewer this time around, really is Seda's decision to leave his aunt's house and all of the implications of that and his refusal to basically tuck his tail between his legs and bite his lip and just uh, and, and apologize to her, even for the sake of his own sister, is really, I mean, the crux of the issue. And as I said in that previous podcast, I think what a much more interesting story it could have been if Seda had actually had to live with the consequences of knowing that his decision had killed his sister. But anyway, it is certainly still a powerful movie. And also we got this note in from Fosca who writes, thanks James for getting in this movie, which allowed me to open my mind for an anime, which I had not done before. Really worth it. Unfortunately, delivery of DVD got de delayed, but I have saved to listen to your podcast after watching. First to say this film is an excellent piece of work and certainly touching. Being prepared with tissues, as for your warning, I must admit I did not use them. Uh, to some extent, I was astonished, astonished myself at Setsuko's passing was heartbreaking for sure, but there is one element which kind of diverts me from this pure emotion. The point was related to Seda's behavior as he had some chances to get back to and get help from his aunt. If he just would have given in and even supported the local brigades, he and his sister might have survived. Thus, I was a bit dis detached from Seda or even angry at him because I simply failed to understand if the separation from the world uh, was inevitable. Still, when comparing with the entrance scene, Seda was not the only one, and he shared his destiny with many others. This also lets me think there is another element of possibly many other orphans that were simply left alone. Those who do not have any real support may suffer the most. I have no clue on the standing of orphans in the Japanese society at the time. Anyway, Seda has made an important choice. He takes responsibility for his sister and wants to create his own peaceful world. He just wants to be good for Setsuko, and by doing this, he is not able to realize him f that he is failing. He always keeps his good memory for his father and mother and is looking, for get looking to get the world back. Very strong for a 14-year-old boy and nothing I can blame him for, especially when sitting in a warm and cozy environment with enough food. Thus, I think this new new world is in contrast to the world of war all around. In my opinion, the fireflies going up actually represent the peaceful world, heaven, especially in contrast to the firebombs falling down. As the fireflies are also starting to die, even Setsuko kills one. This nice world is also on the way down. Very sad. 
While I think you're right, there is a certain aspect of programming in the movie for the young Japanese people to obey the older generation. I think the underlying more uh, point more related to the boy who simply wants to get out of this crap and be a good father for his sister. The author has based the story on his own experience with his sister who died at the end of the war. Finally, one hint to another war movie, which also has the theme of creating a nice world for a kid under terrible conditions. Life is beautiful. A uh, long time since I've seen this and cried at the end for some reasons. All right, thank you for that lengthy note, Vasca. I do appreciate all of those comments, and uh, I think I, I agree with them. And um, and Life is Beautiful, yes, a very powerful and, and interesting movie, um, and certainly takes a subject that we've seen a million times and flips it on his head in an interesting way. Um, perhaps, maybe... I've, fodder for a future conversation. I think we've probably dwelt on World War II long enough for this uh, film literature in the New World Order series for now, though, so maybe sometime before we return to that. But let's lighten things up, and let's take a much, much different approach next month. Of course, next month's uh, conversation, once again, will be on the third Monday of December, and it's going to be well, Christmas-related, of course. It's going to be Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Why not? So, uh, so read up, or I suppose you can watch one of the movie versions, if you so desire, although I certainly hope it's not one of the newer or more colorized ones. But anyway, do uh, familiarize yourself or re-familiarize yourself with A Christmas Carol in, tune, in time for next, uh, next month's podcast. And on that note, that's going to be it for me. Once again, there will be not much coming out until the end of the month on CorbettReport.com as I will be in Groningen in the Netherlands next week. So uh, I hope to see you there if you can make it. And if not, I'll be talking to you later this month. Thank you again for your time.